Hi there, I'm James Dapache, and this is Coffee and a Case Note. Team, today we are going to be talking about a plaintiff and a company owned by the plaintiff and a defendant and a company owned by the defendant. And what happens is that the plaintiff and the defendant resolve that what they're going to do is they are going to go into business together and the nature of that business is property development. And what happens is they incorporate a company and the purpose of that company is to conduct residential developments. Now, what happens is the plaintiff is put in place as a director, the defendant is put in place as a director and secretary, and the plaintiff company is a one-half shareholder, and the defendant's company is a one-half shareholder, and we have this new company established pursuant to this arrangement. Now, at about this time, the plaintiff and the defendant, and the plaintiff company, and the defendant company, enter into an agreement, the terms of which the court isn't really clear about. And what's interesting about this agreement is firstly um, that the court has a challenge making findings about the nature of the arrangement between the parties because the parties are very poor at documenting the arrangements they entered into. Jazz, what's good? Annalise, what's good? And the challenge they face, uh, the court faces, in relation to this arises from uh, what could reasonably describe, be described as a mess of the documents is how the court finds them. And so we nonetheless have this arrangement. Now, the challenge that the parties face is what is the agreement they have? Now, the court finds there's a roughly like 50-50 agreement. And the nature of this 50-50 agreement is a subject of some contest. Now, what the parties find between themselves, or what the parties agree between themselves, the court finds, is that in essence, there's an agreement for uh, profits to be shared between each of the parties, but there is no agreement on the sharing of costs or the sharing of the making of investments, or none obvious to the court. And so the court has to make findings about this contested issue. Now the findings that the court makes about the nature of this arrangement is essentially that there is an opportunity provided for any investor in this new company that's going to do some residential development uh, to uh, take some funding and to take responsibility for any money borrowed on account of that funding to be repaid. And that's essentially what happens because um, after some time passes, we have the plaintiff and the defendant identifying a property that they would like the new company that they've created together to invest in. And this new piece of property is on the New South Wales coast and it is being sold by a receiver and it's being sold by a receiver for about $2.95 million. Guys, please come through. So I'm recording just an ad for work, but it's very, very fine for you to come through. And um, the sale price is funded one half by the plaintiff and the plaintiff company, and they pay for about half the purchase price. And the other half is funded, the defendant's half and defendant company's half, if we think of it that way, is funded by a bank loan. And what's interesting is that each of the plaintiff and the defendant are guarantors for that bank loan. Uh, and there are certain issues we're going to dive into that arise from that. Now, we now have the company that's bought. Remember, it's bought by this new company that we've incorporated, and the shareholders are plaintiff company and defendant company, directors, plaintiff and defendant. Now, what happens shortly after this is our plaintiff forms the view, for their own reasons, that the plaintiff company continuing to be a shareholder would be creating some risk 
in the hands of plaintiff company, some risk that plaintiff company might have to bear the costs related to the bank loan or bear the risk associated with the bank loan. Uh, and for their own reasons, plaintiff agrees for plaintiff company to no longer be listed as a shareholder of the company itself that's doing the development. Now, also at around this time, the plaintiff wants to avoid the potential liability arising from a director's guarantee and so stops themselves being a director. Now, despite this, the plaintiff continues to take what we might call the developer role, holding the purse strings of the development, and the defendant takes what we might call the builder role, uh, trying to be on the tools. But even as I say that, um, the evidence is not absolutely clear as to which party is doing what. Now, uh, things march along. Uh, in about 2017, we have the plaintiff continuing to make loans to the company. And these loans rack up, there's 300 grand here, there's 65 grand there. And we get to this point in 2018 where the plaintiff, uh, and sometimes via other vehicles, has loaned about $3 million, sorry, I'll withdraw that, about $2 million to the company and has been repaid only 3,000. Now, alongside that, there is an offer made by an investor. And this investor offers to the defendant to buy the defendant company's shares. And the offer is, look, I'll buy half your shares, which is to say 25% of the shares in the development company for the amount of about 2 million bucks. And this is at a stage when the company's short on cash. It's at a stage where the plaintiff has no control over the company because he's not a director. And it's at a stage where the plaintiff company is not a shareholder. So it's very hands-off in this position. So as you might imagine, um, the scenario whereby a good investment opportunity is dismissed by the defendant uh, is a bit of a letdown to the plaintiff. And from about this time, what the plaintiff resolves to do is to attempt to become a director again and uh, follows through on this resolution uh, by sort of reinstalling themselves. But shortly after they're reinstalled by way of their accountant filing a form, um, they are removed by the defendant. And then the plaintiff causes themselves to be reinstalled as a director. And after that happens, the defendant causes the plaintiff to be removed as a director. And this actually happens three times, right? Plaintiff installed, defendant removed. Plaintiff installed, defendant removed. And there's this bizarre back and forth where we have director status being put in place for the plaintiff, then removed, and put in place for the plaintiff, and then removed. Now, alongside all this, our defendant is not behaving in an especially impressive way in other ways as well. They've caused the opening of a secret bank account, and they've caused funds to be directed towards their spouse, uh, supported by just sort of reconstructed false uh, invoices, false accounts. And so the defendant's behaving in all these uh, unimpressive ways. And so what happens is our plaintiff and the plaintiff company make an application to the court. And the nature of the application is that it's an application seeking access to some documents initially, but it then comes to be an application for relief pursuant to section 461 of the Corporations Act. And that's a section that allows the court to appoint a liquidator to wind up a company on the just and equitable basis. And they also seek relief well, one of the other uh, prayers for relief they seek is, sorry, let's swap hands. Uh, one of the other prayers for relief they seek is uh, they seek orders pursuant to section 233 that would grant the plaintiff permission to carry on litigation in the name of the company. Now, it's interesting that such relief would be sought pursuant to section 233, because relief of that kind is usually associated with section 236, what we sometimes talk about and sometimes call a derivative action. But in any case, the court has to work through 
the application that's in front of it and does. And what the court finds is that it's appropriate that the company be wound up on the just and equitable basis. The relationship of trust and confidence between the plaintiff and defendant has been completely eroded. Uh, and that might seem fairly trite with the opening of these secret accounts and the funneling off of this money. And so the court's fairly content to make the order for the just and equitable wind up. And then in relation to oppression, the court found, finds that the conduct has been uh, oppressive, uh, as we might say loosely, or unfairly prejudicial to uh, a member or the members as a whole, as we might say, to try to adopt some of the language of section 232, and finds that it is then appropriate to make an order pursuant to section 233. And that order is indeed to grant the plaintiff permission to stand in the shoes of the company to chase some of these relevant debts. And so what we find is our plaintiff person, our plaintiff company, get a liquidator appointed to uh, run, sorry, I'll draw that, get a liquidator appointed to the, <laughs> uh, there'll be copyright issues with that song perhaps, um, <laughs> a liquidator appointed to uh, the uh, property development company and get oppressive relief that allows the plaintiff to stand in the shoes of that company to pursue some other claims. Now, what's interesting about that, and slightly unusual, is that a liquidator is normally appointed to a company to take charge of it and run all claims on its behalf. And so what we have here is orders made not only appointing a liquidator who's able to do that, but also granting the plaintiff leave to go and chase some of the claims as well. So interesting stuff, I hope you agree. Uh, and I look forward to joining you again soon for another coffee and another case note. Cheers.